is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're joined by Andrea Sprott, garden curator since 2010 at the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina, part of the Wing Haven Foundation. For those of us who may need a refresher, Elizabeth Lawrence, born in 1904, was the first woman to graduate from the Landscape Architecture Program at North Carolina State University. She made remarkable and lasting contributions to horticulture in the American South by maintaining her personal garden as a laboratory, as well as through her prolific writing. Lawrence's writing in books, articles, columns, and correspondence was personal, poetic, and full of plant and garden information. 2017 marks important anniversaries of a large number of Lawrence's written work, including the 75th anniversary of what is perhaps the most well-known of her books, A Southern Garden, originally published in 1942. Her second manuscript, The Little Bulbs, was published in 1957. In honor of this notable woman in American gardening, the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden is dedicating their biennial fall symposium to celebrating these milestones on October 18th and 19th in the garden. The event will feature regional and national garden and Elizabeth Lawrence experts. To talk more with us about the gardens, the rich legacy of Elizabeth Lawrence, and the upcoming symposium, Andrea Sprott joins us today via Skype from the gardens. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. Describe (laughs) for us the earliest experiences in your life that formed your love of nature, of the garden, of plants. I can imagine it probably started from the time I was born. I was born in Ithaca, New York, and I spent a lot of time outside. I've always felt a really deep connection with plants and animals and just a fascination of nature in general. My mom is a fantastic gardener, so I've always been surrounded by beautiful gardens and wonderful plants, and um, she and my dad fostered that love of nature all, actually all of my life. Talk about your, your formal education and your journey to Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, my dad worked for IBM and in the late 70s, there was the mass exodus, I guess, from New York down to the Charlotte and, and Raleigh, um, Durham areas here in North Carolina. And we were part of that. Um, that moving of um, people, they were setting up a, I guess, a, a large campus, IBM was here in, in North Carolina. And I was, I guess, eight. So that's what brought us to north of Charlotte, actually near Charlotte. I am primarily self-taught. Meeting my soon-to-be husband reconnected me with my love of gardens with my love of plants and with my fascination with nature. I was 25. Yeah. We were dating. I asked him, what are you doing this weekend? And he would say, oh, I'm just going to be puddling around the garden. (laughs) I'd say, okay, well, let me help you, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And that's how I got to spend more time with him. But it also reconnected me with that love of nature. 
At the time, I was actually an accounting manager for an import-export company, which I actually love accounting work, but I knew that wasn't where I wanted to be. And I was one of these kids who never really knew. I've always loved writing, and I've always loved nature. I found myself in that, that accounting role, and then when I met him and reconnected with that love of nature, I knew that, hey, this accounting work is not for me. So someone had suggested to me, do the Master Gardener program. Mm -hmm. You really like it. So I did. Um, I actually quit my accounting job and I pursued just studying plants and gardening. And that class connected me with Winghaven. Um, It connected me with the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden while it was still under private ownership before it was sold to the Winghaven Foundation. The woman who owned it at that time was also a master gardener. Her name is Lindy Wilson, and she is the woman who was responsible for restoring and saving this garden. And it was her private home and garden at the time. And she would stand up in our master gardener classes and our meetings and would say with a heavy sigh, I am having another busload of tourists coming to see my garden this weekend. (laughs) Could anyone help me mulch and weed? And I thought, who in the world is this woman and what kind of garden does she have that she's constantly got tour groups coming to see her? Yeah. So I volunteered with her a few times in this garden. She tried to explain to me, like, this is Elizabeth Lawrence. She was a garden writer, and, you know, a lot of these plants are still her plants, and this is why this garden is so important. And at the time, I, I just, I was like, oh, that's cool. And and then I thought, well, I guess I'll pick up a book, you know, by <laughs> this woman. Yeah. So I bought a copy of A Southern Garden. I am embarrassed, in a way, to say that I got through about 30 pages of a southern garden and like closed the book and went I don't get what all the hubbub is about this lady (laughs) (laughs) you know I think that to some extent and I say this because my mother was I want to say 45 when she moved to the south her father Mm -hmm. had always and and he was a big gardener his her father and stepmother had been in interior South Carolina for a long time all of my life. Um, They retired there. And so we were familiar with Southern gardening. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. until my mom moved to the coast of South Carolina from Colorado that she realized who Elizabeth Lawrence was and started reading her. And I think it's sort of an acquired taste. Yeah, I think you're right. In a way, I think you're right. I think someone has to be um, at a stage where they're more receptive to it. Yeah, um, and she's smart. Yeah. And it, so it's a little dense. Brilliant. Yeah, and so I think you have to be at a certain maturity in your own life, but also yes. in your own gardening to, to yes. read her and go, oh my gosh, this is so great. Yes, there's a level of appreciation of um, plant material mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's not just I want to, I mean, I was in, at the stage of kind of every plant is a friend of mine, you know, when I when I first started reading A Southern Garden. And and that book in particular, it's it it was Elizabeth's first book. She's the she's the best known for that book. I mean the mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine having written for your first book, you come straight out of the gate writing something that's still in print after 75 years. Mm-hmm. Not only is it still in print, but it is hailed as one of the seminal books and classics on southern gardening what a home run what a home run yeah it's it's also to me having been involved 
very deeply in all things Elizabeth Lawrence and studying her writings for the last almost seven years now. That book, while it's wonderful and incredible, she's to me, she hasn't quite gotten her self-confidence in writing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yet or her comfort maybe is the the right word that I should use. Um, she doesn't seem as comfortable or conversational in her writing of a Southern garden as she did in Gardens in Winter, right. which was she wrote in uh, it was published in 61. Um, so, yeah, to me, I think that um, it, it was it's interesting to see that sort of evolution of the garden writer through studying her writings. Um, well, and, and you're right. I just I wasn't ready for it at the time because it's a lot of information. She had had a very scientific mind but also a very creative mind. I think she was very much left and right brained. I would agree with you. And I think that that shows up in her writings and in the things that she's known for. So she's known for this incredible garden, but she's also known for her very methodical record keeping and for her experiments with plants in terms of zones and hardiness and compatibility and soil types and exposures and so she which is why her her garden is often referred to as a laboratory now I want to back up a little bit because I think we've gotten ahead of maybe some of our listeners but I think I think your your insights on a southern garden are are spot on in terms of her later writing being so much more relaxed. I I think the other thing that um, we need to point out here uh, that is striking is that in the 1940s and 50s and 60s even, Mm -hmm. the importance of developing a regional horticultural record and archive and conversation was Mm -hmm. really just beginning to come out in our country. So still at that point, and and it's still to some extent true in some of the mainstream media, is that there is this sensation of everybody lives in Boston and New York, or everybody lives in San Mm -hmm. Francisco and Los Angeles. We are overcoming that rapidly. But at this point, the idea of microclimates and zones and what was hardy and what was invasive and what combined well was really the purview of a very different region than the South. And I remember this being in Colorado and the Southern growing up in Colorado with a gardening mother and a gardening and gardening grandparents, that Mm -hmm. this idea of what they were learning about plant hardiness and availability in the Mm -hmm. South opened a whole world of understanding to say gardeners in the hot aspects of the West, because all of a sudden you understood, now wait, if those bulbs do well in the South and yeah. they don't do well in the North, they will probably be the ones that are going to do well in the Mediterranean climate of California or in right. Arizona where we have we don't have enough chill hours. So right. this became really important to gardeners and plants people across the country. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because... I think that Elizabeth Lawrence looked at it in the opposite way. She lo- and she looked all over the world mm-hmm. for plants that grow in a similar type climate. That's sort of how she started her search for just trying out plants. She looked at, well, if this does well in the hot West, 
maybe it'll do well for us in the South. She also loved to push the boundaries. She did not like it when someone told her, oh, that won't go here. <laughs> no gardener likes that. Well, you just threw down the gauntlet. Right. Now I've got to get it. Right. You know, it's, yeah, now I have to try it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Elizabeth Lawrence stands as a beacon of horticultural knowledge and a standard of garden writing. Her writing and gardening life span the better part of the 1900s with all of its technological and cultural changes. Her writing in such books as A Southern Garden, Gardens in Winter, and Through the Garden Gate bring this period of American horticulture to life. We'll be right back after a break to hear more from Andrea Sprott, garden curator of the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina, since 2010. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Andrea Sprott, the garden curator of the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina. The gardens, experimental laboratories for gardening in the American South during Miss Lawrence's lifetime, are preserved under the care of the Winghaven Foundation. They were added to the National Register of Historic Sites in 2006 and are a part of the Garden Conservancy. We're back after a break to hear more. Welcome back. I draw a lot of parallels with Elizabeth Lawrence. When I came into this position, I was experimenting like this in my own home garden. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of uh, climate zone or zones and looking at what plants would, would grow where well. I think that's where she was sort of um, one of the first garden writers to experiment like she did and keep meticulous documentation on her experiments mm -hmm. and then distribute both her successes and her failures to her readers. Something that really surprises me when I first learned about how widely publicized Elizabeth's work was there were newspaper clippings that I came across on just in an online search. I came across newspaper clippings from Nevada and from California and from Arkansas, Ohio, from New York, down to Florida and New Mexico even. I mean, it spanned the entire country just about. Yeah. People were writing about her, you know, telling their readers about this woman you know, at, at the time, Elizabeth was living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and writing. She was submitting articles to all the magazines of the time. One of her first articles that got published was in House and Garden. That yep. was a national magazine back then, too. Right. Right. So I think that's bold. I think she was she was a very brave, bold woman. Yeah, very so, confident. And she she opened up a a national conversation in a way that hadn't hadn't been opened before exactly. And maybe, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of Elizabeth Lawrence is that she had a strong design eye, but she was a very accomplished plantswoman as well. Yes, yes, so, she was. And I think that was born out of her natural curiosity about plants. Give sure. a little bit of historical overview of Elizabeth Lawrence for listeners, where she was born, where she was gardening, and how she became established in Charlotte, because you've already mentioned at least one other garden. Um, so give us a little bit of an overview of her as a plants woman and landscape architect. 
Okay. So Elizabeth Lawrence was born in 1904 in Marietta, Georgia. She was actually born in her her father's ancestral home in Marietta, Georgia. Shortly thereafter, the family moved to eastern North Carolina to a small town called Garysburg. And her father was in the sand and gravel business. He had something to do with supplies for building railroads. The family then decided, her parents decided, um, we need to move to Raleigh so that their two girls could go to St. Mary's School in Raleigh. So they did. They moved to Raleigh. Her father maintained his business in eastern North Carolina and commuted back and forth. Um, And so the girls went to St. Mary's. Elizabeth, actually in Garysburg, North Carolina, kept a diary when she was very young, and she wrote about seeing plants and riding horses and spending time by herself outdoors. And she was really fascinated with plants. She followed that passion and kept that all her life. From St. Mary's, she went to Barnard in New York City and studied the classics. She graduated with her degree in, um, in English with a focus on the classics. When she came back from Barnard, she decided she wanted to learn more. She just she wanted to go back to school and, and focus back on plants. So she was the very first and only female in the very first landscape architecture program ever offered in the South, as far as I know. And that was the the very first landscape architecture program at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. The, The home that her parents purchased when they moved to Raleigh was very close to downtown, and it already had an established garden. And it was about an acre. The whole property was about an acre. And I think that that garden and the process of making it the Lawrence's garden was really important for her because that's where she she and her mother spent a lot of time together and that's where they worked sort of hand in hand. They both were very interested in finding different plants. They started talking to the different nurserymen in town and then talking to the people that those nurserymen knew out of town. So they worked a connection and a network to find interesting plant material to add to their garden. And it got to be a very well-known garden. Mm -hmm. And it was the garden in which she was working when she was writing A Southern Garden. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now it no longer exists. We have one stone from that garden that resides now here. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That someone saved. A lot of the plants were saved from that garden and they were distributed to a few people and then from most of the plants that were saved, they created the Elizabeth Lawrence border mm-hmm. at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum in Raleigh. Yeah. And they're working actually right now on reinstating that. Oh, good. What, what propelled the move to Charlotte? Miss Lawrence's sister, Anne, uh, was married, and she and her husband lived here in Charlotte. That house in Raleigh. Uh, Elizabeth Lawrence was living with her mother, Bessie. So Elizabeth and Bessie were living living in that very large house. A lot to keep up with. Elizabeth's father had passed away in the early 1930s, actually. So it it was a lot for just these two women to keep up. And Elizabeth was actually the one who made the decision to move to Charlotte. They sold the property in Raleigh. They came to Charlotte. And Elizabeth and her mom, Bessie, lived for uh, about a year It was the funds from the sale of that house and that property in Raleigh that Bessie used to buy 
two neighboring lots on Ridgewood Avenue here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So on one lot, Anne and her husband and their two small children, they built their house. And within a year or so, maybe a year and a half, Elizabeth and her mother built and moved into their house on the next next door. Elizabeth had a lot to do with the design of this house, as well as everything to do with the design of the garden. And about what year was that, Andrea? They moved from Raleigh in 1948. Okay. And then moved into this house in 49. Okay. Until... 1984. The last years of this property, the, Elizabeth was not as well and able as to maintain uh, the, the garden. So the garden sort of went, as gardens do, into a state of sort of disrepair, you know, the last several years. Elizabeth knew that it was time for her to do something different. Um, she, her mother had passed away in, in 1967, I believe it was, and her sister had, had passed. And so about, about 1983, I believe it was, Elizabeth had a heart attack. And when she got out of the hospital, which was, I think, about a month later, she had to make a decision. So not having ever married herself or she never had children as well. So she contacted her niece who lived in Annapolis, Maryland, and said, I'm thinking about making a move and I want to come live up there. And so she did. Before she moved, she dug a ton of plants and had friends come in to dig a ton of plants because she never expected that anything would be saved. Once she was done, it was done. She moved to Annapolis in 1984 and then passed away the, the, the following year. But that was not the end of the story for this garden. So describe what happens from there. She sold the property to a gentleman who um, was not a gardener. He actually sold the property 18 months later. And that's when Lindy Wilson enters the story of this property. That was in 1986. So Lindy Wilson was a single mom with, with two teenage daughters, and she owned her own business. And she was looking for a place that was in a good school district. So this, this sort of fit the bill. She knew of Elizabeth Lawrence, but she didn't purchase this property for that reason mm -hmm. because it was, you know, Elizabeth's place. She quickly found out that this was a really significant property. I think it was about two weeks after Lindy moved in that Christopher Lloyd showed up on her step. <laughs> yeah, and that it's that Christopher it's like it's the Christopher Lloyd of Great Dixter. Right. Showing up on her doorstep. Wow. Saying that he wanted to see Elizabeth Lawrence's garden. Wow. And you know, the, the, as Lindy tells me the story, she says, "Well, I look at him and I say, of course, but I've got to go to work." <laughs> So the gates open, help yourself. <laughs> and did she know who Christopher Lloyd was at that point? Oh, yes. Okay, so good. So Lindy was, was always a really uh, wonderful gardener. And she actually, her, her, the business that she owned um, and ran herself was a, an interior landscaping business. So she okay. took care of, she and her crew took care of all of like the, the, indoor plants in the atriums in downtown Charlotte. Also, big, huge gardener. So she she began to understand for the next 23 years, Lindy lived here and gardened here, and she set about saving every single plant that she possibly could save that was original to Elizabeth. 
She also, in the course of studying Elizabeth Lawrence, she took on a a similar meticulous note-taking and documentation style. One of the things that makes this property amazing to me is the continuation of the stewardship and the level of detail, the level of um, attention to maintaining the integrity Hmm. is outstanding. Um, It's almost unheard of. And when you start talking about historic preservation, you know, you start looking at historic lands, other historic landscapes, and there's usually a period or two or three in the course of that property where, well, everything was ripped out and this was added in. And, right. you know, we don't have we don't have that here. Right. There's an, a nearly unbroken um, attention to this garden and a, and a sensitivity to the garden. Um as well as documenting the garden. That is, it absolutely is mind-blowing to me. It's pretty miraculous, right? Because, I mean, Lindy really shows up as such an unlikely hero in a way. I mean, you think about your own life. Like, I have two teenage daughters. Mm -hmm. If I took on a garden that was of significance and I didn't know it and I had a business, would I live up to that expectation? I don't know. And and she did, and, and thank goodness for the rest of us. Absolutely. I'm going to try not to choke up, but I cannot express how grateful I am on behalf <laughs> of everybody that that encounters this place and encounters Elizabeth Lawrence in any way and is amazed by her. Lindy has so much to do with Elizabeth Lawrence being part of our conversation mm-hmm. still. And I really didn't understand And I don't think anyone can truly understand what it takes until they have their own hands in the same soil and they are working to maintain the legacy and to grow it. So Lindy lives there for a little over 20 years and ultimately um, the garden, she, she makes it happen that this garden becomes a public legacy and gets taken over by a foundation, gets to be part of the Garden Conservancy and becomes publicly accessible for all of us. While she did maintain and grow this place, unbelievably so, Lindy in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, she started thinking about her future. She was getting a little older. She was retiring from her, her business and thinking about this takes a lot to maintain this. It takes a lot of money. It takes every minute that you can give to it. It takes every ounce of strength that you can give to it. And so she started thinking about preserving it, getting it into the right hands and, and started thinking, where do I even begin? So Lindy actually um, just started talking to preservation groups And the Garden Conservancy was one of the groups that she contacted from the very beginning. And that's how their involvement in the property began. At the same time, Lindy spoke with the Winghaven Foundation. And so their involvement was also at that very same time. So Lindy brought together a group of Elizabeth Lawrence enthusiasts, historic preservation experts, and that included the Garden Conservancy, Winghaven, and representatives from the Southern Garden History Society and um, some other wonderful people. 
they came together and met periodically to start working out how do we save this place once Lindy's no longer here? What happens to it? What should happen to it? Out of this, these meetings was born a group known as the Friends of Elizabeth Lawrence. And it was really that group that was headed by a local history enthusiast, uh, Mary Davis Smart. And Mary Davis worked with Lindy and the whole group, the Friends of Elizabeth Lawrence, worked with Lindy. And they worked, you know, worked trying to get um articles published to tell everybody, hey, this place is still here. It's still significant. It still exists. And also working on the back end saying, okay, how can we preserve this? It evolved into the Garden Conservancy having a great interest in it. And because of the significance of the property, the Garden Conservancy deemed it one of their preservation partner gardens. The Garden Conservancy is the holder of the conservation easement that's on this property. The Winghaven Foundation ended up saying, okay, we are going to purchase this. Lindy, you sell it, we'll purchase it from you. And so the Winghaven Foundation owns and operates the property as a public garden, but it's managed in a partnership mm -hmm. with the Garden Conservancy. We're open from 10 to five, Wednesday through Saturday. Can you become a member or is there just individual admission price? Well, there's you have both options. So the Winghaven Foundation actually operates two gardens on the same street. So I'd mentioned earlier about a garden up 10 doors up the street, which was Winghaven. It's actually Winghaven Garden and Bird Sanctuary, which was started in 1927 by another Elizabeth, Elizabeth Clarkson and her husband, Eddie. So Elizabeth and Eddie Clarkson uh, moved to the to the property 10 houses up the street their garden, uh, Elizabeth Clarkson was very interested in gardening, but became very interested in songbirds. So she created a really wonderful formal garden that was a was a bird habitat and is a bird habitat garden. Hmm. Um, there was a natural relationship that formed between these two properties and between these two Elizabeths. Hmm. When, and when you buy admission of $10 for an adult, you get in to see both. Membership is in the Winghaven Foundation and it, your membership supports both properties. The, the two Elizabeths that lived 10 houses away from each other were in, in constant contact. Right. throughout the years that they were here and both living here. I constantly am running across references in Elizabeth Lawrence's notes and Bloom journals and her index cards to Elizabeth Clarkson's garden and the plants that were blooming there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Elizabeth Lawrence is perhaps one of our country's best-known gardeners. Her garden in the Mid-South was an experimental garden from which she derived much joy and much information on the art and science of gardening. This week, we're speaking with Andrea Sprott, garden curator at the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden, to hear more about Elizabeth Lawrence's legacy kept alive in her garden laboratory. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Andrea Sprott, the garden curator of the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina. On October 18th and 19th, the gardens will host their biennial fall symposium in celebration of, among other things, the 75th anniversary of the publication of Miss Lawrence's first book, A Southern Garden. Welcome back. Describe 
the property of the Elizabeth Lawrence Garden at this point? How, how big is it? What, what, what do people see? Well, the property itself is really small, relatively speaking. It's about a little over a third of an acre. And what they see is a property that has one tiny area of lawn and tiny is, it's really tiny. Um, It's kind of a joke that I even pull a lawnmower out to cut the grass. I should (laughs) use scissors. But um, it's a very, every inch of the property pretty much is cultivated. It is a formal garden. So you're met from the street. You have a hedge of Camellia sasanquas. That was a privacy hedge. And then a parking court, a gravel parking court, and beds in front of the house that everything uh, is blooming at different times. You go around the, the side through the garden gate, the same garden gate that Elizabeth had. Um, it, everything structure-wise in the garden just about is original to Elizabeth putting it there. So the design of the garden has not changed from her design from 1949. So you come around the side of the house and then the back of the property behind the house is a formal layout. Um, there are long paths and axial um, you know, cross paths that sort of segment the property into rectangular beds. Um, there's a pool in the I guess about two thirds of the way back because it's a narrow, long sort of lot. Mm -hmm. And the pool is a perfect circle that's set in a square. And that pool really grounds the entire um, area of the garden there. Um, But the, the beds that the paths create are outlined in stone and what I what happens in those beds is what I call controlled chaos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this garden is planted in layers. So putting a shovel in the ground here is always an adventure. I may, you know, even if there's bare ground that I'm looking at right now, I can put a spade down and I could I could slice through a bulb that's, you know, six inches down. I could slice through a perennial that won't come up until the wintertime. I could slice through, you know, a bed of annuals, seeds that are dormant or, you know, a perennial that's in bloom now. So it's this is sort of it's a figural and a literal, you know, um, layers that the garden's planted in. And that's as Elizabeth did. She planted that way because she wanted to have something in bloom every day of the year and that that is still the case it's the the color palette is constantly changing the plant palette is constantly changing um because of the wonderful stewardship of the property over the years at least 60 percent of the plant material that's in the garden today is still original to elizabeth wow and yeah i mean it's it blows my mind it must be amazing to be the garden curator there and to garden in her literal footsteps. And um, I I just can't even imagine the sense of horror to slice through a plant. I do it in my own garden all the time because of overplanting, but somehow the despair is less than it would be if you were slicing through Elizabeth Lawrence's bulbs. Oh, yeah. There have been some tears that have been shed. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Because it's happened. I mean, I've... I. I sliced right through the middle of a hardy ivy leaf 
cyclamen corm that I kid you not was at least seven inches across. Oh, that makes me so sad. <laughs> I mean, not not even just a nick off the eye went right through the middle oh, of it. And gosh. I I just crumpled to the ground and I just had these two halves of this thing in my hand and I was like, I can if I put it back together and put it in the ground, will it grow back <laughs> really, together? Can I mean, it I was graft? absolutely lost. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> but things happen. Yeah. Um and you know what? Elizabeth Lawrence, the way that she would have looked at that was, hey, it happens. Yeah. It's yeah. not a big deal. The upside to that story was I did find out that that is a good way to propagate your cyclamen course. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't highly recommend it, but <laughs> it worked. For us, because you have now been gardening there for, for seven years and you have an intimate understanding of her as a gardener and, and a writer, describe visually some of your favorite sort of seasonal moments or spots in the garden, Andrea. Well, I will, I will say that people ask me all the time, well, what is the best time of year to, to come here? When will I see the most in bloom? Right. Well... You know, that kind of makes me sigh inside, um, but I have to maintain that, hey, you're right here in, in front of me, and I can't look visually disappointed when you ask me that question. Okay, so <laughs> naturally, what Elizabeth Lawrence would, would have called the, uh, the Easter hat time of the year, spring, of course, that's the time when you expect the most bloom. To me, the best time to spend any time in this garden is the dead of winter. It is the absolute darkest day of the year. It's the worst weather of the year. That's the day that you want to be here because that's when Elizabeth's magic pops out of the ground. I mean, it's there, there are so many unexpected small treasures to be seen and enjoyed and relished. And I guess maybe it's like the if you've got to search for it, the harder you have to search for it, the more rewarding it is to find it. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a factor, but it's just magical to me that there's this, you know, there are there bulbs, these little tiny bulbs that will pop up in the middle of winter and the most mm -hmm. delicate little flowers. And oh, my gosh, if you get down on your hands and knees or lie down prostrate in the middle of the garden, you can smell them and they're fantastic. I mean, it's. It's that kind of magic that um, that I feel like Elizabeth's still here. So wintertime is great. Um, it's my all-time favorite. <laughs> um, I will say the, my favorite spot in the garden is around the pool. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the, you know, it's the this sense of uh, the space, the, the shape of the pool um, is, well, what my husband told me was okay it's the, so this the difference between the sacred and the profane sort of the shapes and the things in the garden and the way that you look at space it's a very calming of course the water is very calming there are fish in the pool that's very calming but then the beds around the pool are the places where you can really get up close and personal like right now there's a a little bulb that's still original to elizabeth um that's blooming it's called autumn snowflake and it's Leucogium autumnalis. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I mean, not even, what, six inches tall? But it's a Leucogium. And it's blooming in August and September. Yeah. And it's so delicate in these little tiny crystalline flowers that are just magic. 
it's that sort of thing that, you know, I just, I'm so inspired by Elizabeth every single day. <laughs> it's, it just makes my job awesome. I, really, yeah. I'm, I'm the luckiest gal in the world. I really am. <laughs> Never knowing what I wanted to do with myself to landing in a job that this is when I, when I, like probably about a year after I started working here, I stopped one day and I looked around and I thought, yeah, this is why I'm here. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that's a pretty heavy sort of thought and like aha moment. Definitely. And it, and it's what drives me. You know, it's a I, it, Elizabeth just inspires me every day. She's amazing. So speaking of Elizabeth's inspiration, give <laughs> us a little bit of a taste of what we can expect from the symposium. So the symposium is, um, it's a symposium that Winghaven, the Winghaven Foundation has put on since, oh, I want to say probably the late 80s or early 90s. And um, it's a every occurs every other year. And it's one of our major fundraisers for the year um, for that the year in which it it occurs. Mm -hmm. And this year, the title of it is um, inspiring the unexpected. And so the symposium spans two days, um, October 18th and 19th. On October 18th, that part of the symposium is really focused on Elizabeth Lawrence and celebrating major anniversaries of four of her six, well, actually three of her six manuscripts, and then uh, also celebrates a major anniversary of a compilation of some of her articles that she wrote for the Charlotte Observer. And so that's where the Elevens is with Elizabeth Lawrence celebrating anniversaries. That is going to occur on October 18th. It will be here in her home and in her garden, and it will feature three different panel discussions, interview format panel discussions. Um, we're going to focus on Elizabeth Lawrence, the author, will be one of the panel discussions, and we'll have, um, I'm so excited to say that we will have her biographer in attendance, in participation. She's one of the panelists, as well as um, Dr. Bobby J. Ward, who wrote um, J.C. Ralston's biography. Mm -hmm. And he so was Emma one of the editors on A Garden of One's Own, and maybe another yes. one as well. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah Dr. Ward was um, an editor in that. He's, I believe he had met new Elizabeth Lawrence and is a wonderful writer, a wonderful gardener, and I'm just, I'm so pleased as punch that Emily Herring Wilson and Dr. Ward can both be part of that panel to talk about her as an art, as an author. And then the second panel will be about Elizabeth Lawrence as the gardener. And I'm also pleased as punch to say that um, a gentleman who gardened here with Elizabeth Lawrence for a very long time and then gardened here with Lindy. For the whole time she was here, still gardens with Lindy at her home, at her home and garden where she is now. Um, he will be with Lindy on that panel talking about the garden, what it was like to garden with Elizabeth Lawrence. And then the last panel, which I'm so tingly about, will be the most exciting for me in a way because it will feature Miss Lawrence's niece and nephew who grew up next door and were very close with their aunt. And they will talk about 
the legacy. How, what's their role in preserving her legacy? Lindy Wilson will also be a part of that panel. Um, so that it's going to be a really interesting day. Um, people have asked me, you know, why should I sign up for it? Well, if for no other reason, you're going to find out some really fun things about Elizabeth Lawrence as a person because her niece and nephew have a lot of cool insight. Right. And so should people uh, that are able to attend pre-register? Yes. They okay. can go to our website, winghavengardens.org, and go into the events page, and you'll see the symposium. They can register um, for the different parts of the symposium. On the same day, in the evening, will be a cocktail party uh, here as well. So that's called Toddies on the Terrace. Elizabeth Lawrence was, was um, pretty fond of having a drink on her terrace, <laughs> which is actually where the title The Elevenses came from, Elevenses with Elizabeth Lawrence. I believe that's a British thing, it taking is. Elevenses. Yeah, Elevenses, yeah. my mother called it, yeah. Yeah, and and so, yeah, Elizabeth did every day. She had her Elevenses. Um, she had her sherry or port um, at 11 in the morning, and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when she would have, you know, bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Because why not? <laughs> why not? Um, that is fabulous. I would like to say that for the, um, also with the symposium, the next day. Okay. We'll have Ken Drews. Oh, nice. And yes, and Margot Shaw um, as part of a presentation. Um, you know, they'll have, the, they'll give both give presentations about their take on being garden writers and how they inspire the unexpected through garden writing and photography. And um, Margot Shaw is also editor of Flower Magazine. And so that that will be very cool as well. Nice. Is there yeah. anything else you would like to add? I, I do. I wanted to read one of my favorite quotes, which is pretty iconic. Um, Elizabeth Lawrence wrote for the Charlotte Observer for 14 years. And every Sunday, she had an article that came out in the paper, and she gained quite a following um, from writing these regular articles. And people would show up on her doorstep, or they'd put a flower in her mailbox at her front door, um, asking her to identify plants, or they'd call her on the phone um, looking for certain plants. I think she really loved writing a regular column for the paper. But I think that that her very first column, the very first paragraph in her very first column was really sort of sums up how she thought about gardening. This is the gate of my garden. I invite you to enter in, not only into my garden, but into the world of gardens, a world as old as the history of man and as new as the latest contribution of science, a world of mystery, adventure, and romance, a world of poetry and philosophy, a world of beauty, and a world of work. Thank you so much for being with us today, Andrea, and sharing this story and your work with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Andrea Sprott is the garden curator since 2010 at the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina, part of the Wing Haven Foundation. In honor of this notable woman in American gardening, the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden is dedicating their biennial fall symposium to celebrating milestones in Elizabeth Lawrence's life 
in the Garden on October 18th and 19th. For more information on the event and to register, please visit winghavengardens.org. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, subscribe to the program on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, give it a rating and review. And most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.